Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. I'm Tyler Tischlar from Superior Book Promotions, filling in for Irene Watson, the managing editor of Reader Views. And I'm Victor Volkman from Loving Healing Press in Ann Arbor, Michigan. I'd like to welcome all our listeners to episode number 137 in our series. Tonight's topic will be Turning Memories into Memoirs, Autobiographies, Short Stories, and Nonfiction. With special guest, Dion McInnes. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. We'd love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send us your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Now, tonight we're on the line with Dion McInnes, who has always loved the stories of his life and the lives of those he has encountered. He believes in the richness, wisdom, and humanity of stories. Over time, he realized that it's harder to rekindle memories and finds the ways to turn them into stories, whether for memoirs, autobiographies, short stories, and so on. So he developed a way to find the memories and turn them back into words. He teaches the Memories to Memoirs workshops at a variety of outlets, as well as uh, teaching photography. He fell in love with writing by the time he was age 12. During the day, he's a university administrator, and every moment of every day, he's a writer, photographer, speaker, and poet. His most recent book is entitled, Dadden, the Verb of Being a Dad. Well, good evening, Dion. Good evening. How are you all doing? Great. Thank you for uh, coming on the show, Dion. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really interested in your topics. I've always been interested in memories and um, shaping our, turning our lives into stories. So... I, I was wondering if you could tell us to start out a little bit about your workshop and um, how you went about getting started on and why you decided to give a workshop on how to turn your memories into memoirs. Well, thanks for the question, and, and thanks again for the opportunity. The, I think the situation that we all have as, as writers, um, and, and I mean the writers who are serious about their craft, where they want to you know, uh, be published somewhere, or those who are just writing for their own enjoyment, Uh, it's hard sometimes to decide where to start with our stories. The way I start each workshop is we can't start our story by saying I was born at a very early age. You know, we've we've got to start somewhere, and we've got to weave it all together. And as as I've developed and and written my own fiction and nonfiction over the years, um, I realized that it, it would be helpful to have those prompts. So I started by doing some short presentations at a, at a local bookstore, and one thing led to another, and I developed the Memories to Memoirs workshop that I presented first to a seniors group. And it seemed like a logical place to, to help people look back over 60, 70, 80 years and, and find a way to start and find a way to bring all the pieces together. Well, some of the workshops ended up being cross-generational. We had you know, uh, parents and their children in the workshop, and it was fascinating to see how a similar you know, an incident that they both remembered in their lives was viewed very differently when one was an adult and the other was a child. And so the, the richness that comes from the process of the, the timelines that we use has, has turned out to be something for seniors. I've used it with high school kids, um, basically anybody who's trying to tap into memories because, you know, as writers, whether we're fiction, nonfiction, short story, or, or you know, novel, uh, everything is based on our memories. And, and the richness of the characters and the context of the story, everything is based on our memories, and that's where we create 
our characters, our plot lines and, and storylines and everything come from, from that. So, you know, as, as I've done this workshop, I guess, my goodness, 40, 50 times by now, um, at a university where I work, at a community college, at churches, hospitals, uh, a variety of places, it's just more and more clear that, that writers can use these tools um, to help all of their work. One of the things we do in the workshop is, is to help the, the attendees realize that there are a lot of different arrows in the quiver. They can, you know, they can use this concept to help generate ideas for their poetry, for their letter-writing correspondence, uh, for essays, or for stories. And each of those, of course, are different styles, but as they learn how to incorporate these memories into those different versions, um, it just makes them more powerful. Well, that's, that's really interesting. Since you have younger, you have younger people coming as well, um, why do they come to the workshop? Do they, do they already have this idea that they want to write a story or they feel that they have a significant event in their life that they want to write about? Yes and yes. <laughs> and, and even there, there's probably a different reason for every person who attends. Just some quick examples of things that I've seen over the years. Um, World War II veterans who are uh, trying to come to grips with, with their role as the greatest generation and, and the burdens that come from that. Uh, you've got uh, people who are you know, just curious, you know, naturally curious about putting their story together. And, and they've been, uh, shall we say, motivated <laughs> by grandparents, grandkids or their own kids saying you know, they'd like to have the story. Uh, we had one woman who was, I'm, I'm guessing she was about 45, who was a, uh, what's, a what's probably the best term, uh, she was a real groundbreaker in terms of being the captain of a ship as a merchant marine, and, and she was the first, if not one of the first, women to have that sort of role. And everybody was pressuring her to do presentations and write stories about, you know, gender busting the, the role. And she said, you know, that's, that's just not it. That's, she said, that's not the story. And so she came to try and find out what the story was. And one of the side benefits, uh, maybe not even the side benefits, but one of the strong benefits of this process is that not only do you discover, discover more about your own life, you find out more about yourself. And as you go through the, the timelines and writing exercises, certain threads start to pop up. You know, there's certain things that, and for example, the woman in the Merchant Marines, she realized that but what she really wanted to talk about was in this journey of growing up, yeah, there was always somebody at the right time to help her to the next step. And so it was the people along the journey. And so people come for different reasons, and, and they, they frequently leave with a different reason than they came with. That, that's that's interesting. I, I can see how how that would happen because it sounds like it's all about um, you know refining it and, and trying to give meaning to this meaning to the story. Maybe you didn't see it as connected, but now you do. Um, I'm I'm wondering since the, the the examples that you gave sound like they're really interesting stories, um, and I've I've always thought that everybody's life has a meaning. But I'm wondering like, do you ever have people that come and they want to tell their story and you? You or they kind of struggle with what is the what about this story is really interesting enough that anybody else would want to read it? What makes this person's story worth telling if they, you know, they weren't famous, they didn't do anything, you know, groundbreaking in their life? How how do you take that person's story and make it interesting? That's a really good point. The in this process of kind of self discovery and self awareness, 
I try and emphasize that we, we all have a story. And, in fact, my first book, Listen to Life, was all about the wisdom that we gain from listening to life stories, whether it's a message you get from a, a wise professor or the checkout clerk at you know, the nearby grocery store. There's something to learn from everybody, and we all contribute to the, you know, the great wisdom. And as we go through the processes, and, and people start to see that they have important stories. I had one, one person, I guess he was um, probably his mid-70s, as we went through the timelines, he said, uh, you know, I, I've done everything. I, yeah, I've just done, done it all. And one of the things we look at is what is left to come in your life because, you know, part of what we do with our memories is use those to help generate our plans and dreams for the future. And so as we talked about that, he says, there's nothing left for me to do. And I just looked at him and I said, you know, you, you told the story of being a young man full of testosterone and uh, – running the, the river in the, in the Grand Canyon, and, and you did that like nobody else ever did. I said, yeah. I said, well, when's the first time that you were a 75-year-old man who took that trip but looked at the, the geology and the geography with the wisdom of the senior? And he just looked at me. I said, you know, there are always firsts. So you, you come in and you think you have nothing and you have a lot, or you think you have everything and you really just scratch the surface. So there's such a a reawakening and an introspection that happens in the process that, that people find that some of the things they don't think are stories actually are, and uh, some of the writing exercises we go through open up just treasure troves of stories and insights, and some people who think they've got it all covered realize, you know, they, they've just begun. Great. Dion, let's talk a little bit about this idea of the horizontal timelines. I think I know okay. what you mean, but I just, I'm not quite sure. Okay. We, we use four timelines. And um, unfortunately, we tend to think generally in, as we look at time in a, in a linear fashion. You know, we, we went to first grade before we went to eighth grade. We went to eighth grade before we got married, hopefully. <laughs> you know? um, and, and so we think in that, in that fashion. And when we think in timelines, we just kind of jumble it all in there. And so what I tried to do is, is develop four timelines that, uh, that you can look at, each one independently, horizontally, you know, from beginning to where you are now. Or you can stand on any one point on the timeline and imagine them stacked on top of each other and just drill down through the four of them and gather a lot of richness of, of what's happening. And, and if, if now is a good time, I'd like to explain what those timelines are. Can we do that? Uh, yeah, I'm dying to find out now. Oh, okay. The, well, what we're trying to do is help people understand that they are part of this greater thing called, you know, Earth. And first we have to start very broadly about what each, you know, each person's life is relative to the grand scheme of things. And then I ask them to go through these processes that, that narrow it down until it's very, very personal. Okay? So the first timeline is all about um, the things that are happening in the world during your life. And we ask them to go in general chronological order. And, and in fact, what we ask them to do is, is draw two dots, one at the top of the page, one at the bottom. They connect them, and I said, that's your lifeline. And I said, you, know, you were born, and you're going to die, and you're not dead yet. And so put an X on the line where you think you are today. That one step is such a clarifying moment for so many people. Wow. It's really interesting 
Yes, it's really interesting because it changes people's perceptions of, of what it is that they're looking at. Are they looking at their middle of their life? Are they looking at it near the end? You, you know, I've seen people that, in my eyes, appeared to be fairly young, and I could note that the X on their line was far to the bottom. Does that mean they're going through illnesses? Does that mean, you know, what's going on there? I did this at a small church, and the founder of the church was sitting next to me, and she was 83 at the time, and, and I was 50. And she put her ex on her line the same place I put mine. And I thought, good grief, this woman either thinks she's going to live to be 130, or she's just got a whole lot better outlook on things than I do. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it really is a clarifying moment when we do that first X on the line. So in general chronological order, from the first dot down to that X, I asked him to put, what are the things that happened in history? Okay, because we were all touched by these things that happened in history, and, um, you know, some differently. You know, for example, uh, a, a friend of mine, her husband grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, he's the exact same age I am, well, within a couple of days. And he lived in Washington, D.C. area, and he saw the Vietnam War protests from that perspective. I grew up in Houston, Texas, okay? So the perspectives that we have of the exact same occurrence in history, our perceptions are very, very different, and they affected our lives very, very differently, okay? Just like race riots in Mississippi would be very different than if you lived in Nebraska and so forth and so on. Um, there are historical things that happen if you were in the great earthquake of San Francisco and you lived there, well, your perception of that historical event is very different than the person who lives in Hawaii when that happened, you know, or, or Florida. And so we, we live through these things, though, and we have different perceptions of what those mean to us. If you lived during the oil embargo of the 80s and you lived in Houston, okay, it, that's smarted because so many people were losing their jobs in the gas lines, whereas if you lived somewhere else, it felt differently. So the first line is history. That's very broad. We all live through it. It touches us in bold ways or, or subtle ways. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, I was a little kid, and, and we were trained how to lean over the little girls in second grade to protect them from, you know, the building crumbling, okay? One of the guys in the workshop was a pilot flying in an airplane for five days in a row with live nuclear bombs. His perception of that time is very different than mine, right? Okay, so then the next timeline um, is to, to look at things that are your firsts, Okay. And, and we can all relate to firsts. You know, we can all relate to our first bicycle. It's not as general as the historical things, but it is a little more personal, and we can connect to it. However, if you got your first bike during the Great Depression, you have a different story and memory of its importance and value than if you got your first bike and your parents were part of the great, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, economic boom. Okay, so the, the, the conditions... Of, of your first are very different. And, um, for example, last summer I went to teach in the Czech Republic, uh, teach photography. And it's the first time I ever traveled out of America. Okay? And other people I know have been in and out of the 48 states a million times. But for me it was still new and exciting because it was a first. Okay? And one of the things that I try and convey in the class is that, you know, because it's your first, uh, or if it, just because it's somebody else's first and you've done it a million times, you can't poo-poo that. You have to uh, appreciate the, the, the excitement or the nervousness. If somebody comes up to me and says, hey, i got my first uh, public speaking engagement tomorrow, it would be wrong for me to say, ah, no problem, go get them, Tiger, because I do 300 of them a year. Okay, this may be their first one. 
So, you know, as we look at our firsts and we look at where they are in our timeline, my first trip out of America was at age 54, and the student in the workshop, she traveled out of America the first time when she was two years old. Okay, so we, we can understand each other's firsts, but they come to us with very different contexts. Then the third timeline, again, each one's done the same way, dot at the bottom, dot at the top, connect them, mark an X where you think you are. Okay, then the third timeline is going to be about what things are personally significant to you. Okay? Now, the first may be first kiss, first date, first marriage, first loss of the parent. Things that are personally significant that aren't, um, aren't necessarily a, uh, a first may be um, you encountered somebody at the, the mall and they said something that was very wise and it caught your attention. Or it may be, you know, I've, I've I've learned some incredible lessons from homeless people and, and beggars on the street. Uh, I wrote an article on sales based on an interaction I had with a shoeshine in Chicago. Okay, so these are personally significant things that touched us, and those are so personal that the other people in the room might say, I don't even know what you're talking about. So here we are. We're three-fourths of the way through. We've got three timelines. We've got history that's happening, and it's affecting us one way or another. Then we've got things that are first that other people can relate to, okay? And then we've got things that are personally significant just to us. Others may or may not relate to that, okay? But they can understand what it means for something to be personally significant. And then the fourth timeline is people, okay? Who has come into and out of our lives that we remember? It may be somebody like our parents, and that lasted most or all of our lifetime. It may be somebody that we encountered for two minutes. It may be somebody whose name we can't remember. But who are the people that came in and out? But when you stack those four timelines on top of each other, let's say, for example, um, in, in the, you, you remember a, an incident, you remember something that was significant was when your, um, when your brother Tommy came, was home for Thanksgiving in 1968. Well, the reason that was significant that your brother was home for Thanksgiving in 1968 is that he had uh, he'd been in Vietnam for a year. Well, now we've got the history and the context of the war. We've got the fact that it's significant. Maybe the first was it was the first time the whole family had been together. And the people who were there were your aunts and your uncles and your cousins and your nephews and your neighbors, and they were all there because Tommy was home. Well, that just, put, that just looked at that one event through all four of those timelines, and now you've got this rich, robust memory with history, with people, with context, with things that were personally significant. And now you've got an incredible amount of richness, whether you want to write a short story about that event or whether that's just part of a much longer memoir or autobiography or, or whatever you want it to be. So that's the concept. Well, that's fascinating. Now that you mention it, you know, the junction of those four lines are probably areas that you should pay attention to. Yeah, they, they all, they really do. They're very interconnected. And I think that's part of the thing that we struggle with as writers is, um, and it's human nature, I believe, that we, t we tend to remember things kind of in isolation. Um, we remember a specific incident or a specific person. But if we can pull back a little bit and look at those four timelines and say, oh, wait a minute. The reason that was so special is because of all these other influences. Well, now all of a sudden we've, we've been able to add dialect to our dialogue. We've been able to add vocabulary based on the era. You know, the, was it the hippie era? Was it the, you know, dot boom, dot com era? You know, we've got all these different things that we can add because we're not only looking horizontally from where this incident is in time linearly, but we're also able to drill down to get all the, 
the context and things that are connected. Great. Well, I, I just find that all fascinating, Dion, and it's uh, similar, kind of similar to what I do myself because I write novels, and um, when I get stuck, when I when I'm not sure what to have my characters do or say, I will just ask myself questions like that, such as, well, which who did they vote for in 1960, or what were they doing during World War II? So I, I can completely see how that's that's useful. Um, I, I'm wondering, since you've, you've used the term short stories, I'm wondering how many or if any of the people that come to your workshops, if they actually want to turn their um, their stories into like novels or fictional accounts, or are they all specifically wanting to be nonfiction? That's a really good question. They, um, I think a lot of them have come in with one concept and, and again left with another, or they've come in and left with a with an understanding that they can do a lot more with those memories. You know, they may think that what they're, they're going to do is they're going to write you know, their, their own personal history for their kids or grandkids. And then when they walk out they, they, and they go through these exercises, they realize they can write fiction, they can write poetry, they can write so many different things just based on the richness of what they've been able to conjure up and, and connect words to. Um, I wouldn't say that most of the people leave thinking about fiction. The people tend to be you know, in one direction or another when they come in. But uh, some people have, you know, and they've, they've shared with me their ideas. And, and, you know, they look at some of the people on that timeline and they realize if they blend a couple of people, they can end up with some very interesting, interesting characters. Uh, you know, they, it, it really is fodder. I mean, it, it, it feeds so many different things that, uh, that writers can choose from. I'm, I'm wondering, too, about... Um like what might be the borderline between the fiction and nonfiction, especially when you're writing an autobiography. Um, there's always the concern that people who are still alive that you mentioned it are going to be upset with you. And so um, <laughs> how, how do you approach that in terms of, like, do you just simply change everybody's names or are there certain things that you do fictionalize, even though it's really nonfiction, just to, to avoid getting a lawsuit or something like that? Right. I, I think that um, obviously each writer will choose their, their path of comfort, but um, I would say just personal advice, if, if a writer is going to write fiction, um, they really do need to change names and, and disassociate for, uh, for their own protection, but also for protection of the people that influenced the, the combination of characters or the combination of characteristics that became the character. Um, you know, if it's fiction, it's fiction. If it's nonfiction, it's nonfiction. And, and I think that you need to be, be careful with that. Uh, that also raises a, a, a point, though, in terms of memories and, and hurt feelings and um, perception. And one of the homework assignments that we give the students is involves going back to some other people and asking them for their perception of a specific memory. And I, and I encourage the students not to do that too soon. You know, wait until you, as a writer, own your history and own your memories as your own, okay? Because if those memories are, are tentative or uh, you don't feel strongly committed to them, you could call a relative that says, I don't remember that way at all, and they could dominate and overpower your memories, and then pretty soon it's not your story anymore. Uh, or you lose the conviction of your story, which is then going to affect the writing and make it weak instead of powerful. So, um, you know, it's the... The perception of others who are involved in our lives uh, 
that's something that you have to be careful with. But it is what it is. That, that's really interesting. I was that was actually another one of the questions I was going to ask was about how how we determine how valid our memories are. Um, but um, I, I I edit books and I've edited some autobiographies myself. And one of the one of the problems that I've had is trying to convince the author or, or trying to get the author to see that there's like a plot to that makes the reader want to keep reading. And, and I find that a lot of them they uh, they write a whole bunch of scenes about what actually happened, like they're just a journalist, like they're just reporting it. But I, I'm left wondering why did they put this in here? Why is this? Why is it significant? Why do I care about this nice little Christmas 1957 scene, for example? What does it have to do with right. the bigger picture? So how how do you get around problems like that? Part of the challenge as we go through the the workshop is that I, I try and remind everybody that they are generating a lot of material, not all of which belongs in the book. Okay, And a lot of the stuff that's generated can serve to feed ideas or to uh, add to the context, but that doesn't mean that everything that goes on that timeline belongs. And as we go through the, the three or four weeks, depending on where I'm teaching it, uh, as we go through the process, I, I encourage them to look at their writing, uh, look at the, the writing prompts that we use, Look at their timelines, add to the timelines, seek out other people, use the Internet, you know, add some stuff to it, because then when you have an abundance, you can cherry-pick what's best, okay? And, you know, the, the way writers succeed is by writing, right? So, you know, you keep reminding them, you've got to keep writing, but don't expect that everything you write is going to make it. You know, you, you've got to be brutal at the end about what really connects the dots, and if it doesn't connect the dot and push forward the story, it's gone. But that's okay. It's not wasted effort because then that, that may be a, later that incident may become a short story. It, it could become song lyrics for that matter. So it's never a wasted effort, but you really have to be brutal with yourself to see what really pushes things forward. Great. I was just thinking, uh, you know, you, you made the old joke about I was born at a very young age, but uh, I've actually coached people to you know, after they have their collection to, to lead off with their strongest story on, on page one, chapter one, the sort of one of the central conflicts in their life, because if you don't grab the readers soon, uh, they won't be hanging around. For example, right. uh, David Powell, when we wrote his book, uh, turned out, you know, up to age 25, actually there wasn't worth anything worth mentioning. <laughs> right. <laughs> we found ways to add details later in the form of flashbacks and and letters to home and and conversations with other people where he told you know a little bit revealed a little bit more of his story yeah so I just thought I'd throw that out there so. yeah it's it, it, and that's a good point that um you know you could write a whole book about one weekend you know or you can write a whole book about your entire life. Um, it's it's really by going through this process, and especially since you're looking at the lines next to each other or on top of each other, you start to see that, wow, in this section of my life, there was a lot of activity. Maybe that's where the story resides. Okay, so it, it really provides a powerful visual as you keep going back to it. We can see certain trends in your life, um, risk, adventure, something that that is story-worthy. I was kind of wondering, uh, are there any specific advices, advice that you have for someone 
who wants to or has a, a tendency to go for humor in in writing of the memoirs? <laughs> um, be very careful. I mean, it's really hard. Humor is hard to do, and uh, but I think humor is really one of the most effective ways to communicate too. So, to me, if I if I think about natural humor, people who are humorous, right? They're not trying to be. You know, it's just kind of a, it's almost a charm. Uh, there was there was an expression I heard years ago that said, you know, people who are charming should not analyze why they are, or they'll become uh, affectations instead of natural. And so I think as a writer, if a writer is trying to be humorous, then it's it's gonna it's gonna get real clunky real fast, and, and they're gonna lose the story. This is not, you know, this is not Friday night at the laugh stop. What's funny in life is life. And if you tell the story in a conversational way and you have the richness of the character and their dialects and the context and the decorations of the home and, and you know, all these things that create these strong tools and these strong, we can, writing is sensual. You can, you can hear the person laugh. You can hear them talk. You can almost touch the roughness of the person's skin because of the description. Um, it's, it's that sort of richness that makes people laugh. If you're trying to make them laugh, just in my humble opinion, if you try to make them laugh, they probably won't. Yeah, I've, I think you hit the nail on the head with that one. Uh, Tyler, do you have any uh, additional follow-ups? Yeah, I, I was just kind of wondering, we mentioned um, when we introduced you, Dion, that you're also involved in photography. And yeah. I was wondering if you use any sorts of tools or tricks to help trigger memories and if photographs would be one of those. Absolutely. And, and thank you very much for that question. Photography has meant a lot to me since I was six. And, in fact, one of the classes that I teach at the Houston Center for Photography is called Words and Images. You know, as a species, it, uh, we're, we're symbolic. So if you say the word cat to me, I will have an image in my mind. I will not think of times Roman font size 12, right? Um, and, and so we, we conjure up images by our words, and when we look at words, I mean, when we look at images, we, we see work, we see stories in our minds, okay, and we, we can hear the stories. You cannot separate words and images for the human species, right? So, you know, when we, when we encourage the people in the workshop to look at their images, uh, particularly look at the images through the context of time. I took a photograph of my mom and dad when I was nine years old, and it was them hugging in the backyard. I always liked the photo. I liked the expression and how it, it felt, but about... Seven years ago, I looked at the photo again and noticed the date. And I started processing in my mind. I'm not 100% sure because both my parents are gone now. But if I remember correctly, that date was about the time that Dad was shown to come out of remission for throat cancer. Okay? That changes the context, the personal momentousness, the emotion, the sensuality, the everything about that photo. Everything about that hug changed when I realized, oh, wait a minute, that was after Dad got through throat cancer. Okay, so, you know, when we, we look at our images and we look at them almost with those timelines in our mind, it changes everything. It gives us such a different context. It gives us more things to describe because, of course, they're visual. So we can look at those and describe that, you know, crazy pattern of wallpaper on the wall. And, and when we use those sorts of descriptions, people who live through that can, can connect to it. They say, oh, I remember that. I remember my first color TV. I remember, 
again, you go back to those timelines, you know, the first TV, the first whatever the, the four are, you know, whichever ones you're using, the image helps us draw out the words to convey the importance of that first or that historical context to the person involved. That, that's really interesting. That makes me wonder, too, about um, do you do anything with the senses, like asking people to remember what they smelled or, or how they, you know, what they, what they felt at a certain time in a certain situation? Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, again, I use the visuals from the photography world. Now, I'll tell folks, for example, if, if you remembered a, you know, a special breakfast or a, a regular thing that your mom did making breakfast for the family, I said, close your eyes for a minute, okay, and just just think of that. What does what does the bacon look like? Is the the flat fat flaps in the in the heat, and then the you know kind of the spark showers of of fat as they as they boil out and hit you, and, and the aroma in the house, and the the sound of the fan over the stove as it sucks the smoke off the stove. You know, listen to all that in your head. Pick up as much of that as you can. Feel the heat of the oil as it hits your skin. What did your dad say when that oil splashed on him? Did he have an expression he used to use when that happened? You know, those are all moments to pause and, and bring all those, those thoughts and memories together, and they're all very powerfully visual. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm almost speechless because I'm, like, doing that in my own head. I, I can completely see how that how that works and, and all of those uh you know how the the farther you get back into the memories, all the all the senses would be reawakened, and you'd you'd remember those things, or even just how you know you hear a song or something, and it triggers memories for you. How that absolutely, and and one of the challenges on all this, uh, and it's something that I, I try. <laughs> I'm not sure how well I succeed. I, I try to help people understand that um, they're about to get hit with a fire hose. You know, there is so much that starts flooding in that the, the problem for them as writers is no longer, what do I write about? The problem is more is, which do I choose? And it's, so it's a, it's a different sort of, it's not a writer's block, it's a writer's abundance. What do, you, what do you choose from all of this? And that's why through the writing exercises that we use and the different writing styles I ask them to, to try, is that some things are going to surface. The cream's going to surface, you know, or the low-hanging fruit, whichever metaphor you want to use, right? There, um, things are going to happen where they're going to realize that's the story I can do most efficiently and, and you know, satisfying now. Uh, that's going to be my most fulfilling story there. That's going to, and, but as you do this, you're never, you're never short of content ideas ever again. I can see that. You've given me all kinds of ideas. Okay, uh, before we wrap up, uh, Dion, let's Give us your uh, website and your Twitter and anything else you'd like uh, listeners to know about. No, thank you. Um, my website is DionMcInnis.com, B-I-O-N-M-C-I-N-N-I-S.com. And, and from there, you've got photography portfolios and writings and book reviews and, and a variety of things. Um, I'm, I'm not a big Twitter kind of guy. I do have a LinkedIn page, but, but really the, the best way to – Contact me, follow what I do, follow my workshops. Um, all those things is really through the Dion McInnes site. I've got a contact, contact form there. I've got a newsletter sign-up form. Almost every Sunday I have a Listen to Life newsletter that goes out. Um, that, is, that is kind of the hub of all activity for me. Great, and I just want to thank you on behalf of Irene Watson, who couldn't be here with us this evening. And well, Thank you. Been... I had a good You're time. Well. 
All right. You've been listening to another podcast edition of Authors Access, where authors get published and published authors get successful. You can learn more about our guest on the Authors Access website, which is authorsaccess.com. Stay tuned for the next episode, Writing Humor and Satire, with special guest Tom Cornett. We'd love to hear from you about tonight's show. Please send us your questions and comments to info at authorsaccess.com. Authors Access is a joint production of Reader Views Incorporated and Loving Healing Press. And filling in for Irene Watson of Reader Views, this is Tyler Tischler in Marquette, Michigan. And I'm Victor Wolfman in Ann Arbor, Michigan, wishing you all a good evening.